It went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook. You know, looking back on this now, winning winning a major, uh, your second win, 2004. Looking back, uh, uh, did you find that you needed to set some new goals for yourself at that point? I don't think I really knew what I was doing with it. I kind of, I kind of wanted just to keep it where I was, you know, stay, stay with what I'm doing. Don't make too many changes. What I'm doing is working, you know, just try and keep working on it, keep working on it, keep working on it in the same way that I had been doing it. Um, I felt it, the initial aftermath of the win was very overwhelming. Uh, lots of media, lots of people interested. Bear in mind, I had, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anybody helping me with anything. Everything was coming straight to me. Um, so it was completely above my pay grade in all honesty. And it kind of hit me for six. I, I, I was very lucky that I was able to go back to, to golf straight away. I went to Toledo the following week, came second. So I was able to continue that, that form into the following week, but the golf course really was my sanctuary. And, you know, I was able to lose myself in my golf, mm. but I probably could have been better with goal setting. But for me, it was always a bit surreal with, with goals because it was never about winning. It, was, it, it wasn't about the tournaments. It was about my own self-improvement. And for that one week, I had been pretty perfect. Mm. And, um, and I'm not sure that I knew how to, how to do more than that or, or even if there was anything more than that. I know, and, and Bruce, uh, you'll remember talking to a lot of these greats that we've we've talked to. Uh, when you win, you just assume you're going to keep winning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. You don't think it's going to change because it happens so easily. You're yeah. absolutely right. I certainly did. But it's back to our point we made earlier. It's hard to win. And so, uh, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, time marches on. You kind of, we'll, we'll help have you kind of help us bridge the gap from 2004 to uh, yep. what would be your next victory at the Wales Ladies Championship. But uh, um, it still didn't come easy, right? I mean, you were, I'm sure, working hard and nope. you had learned a lot about yourself and your game. But it was still yep. very, very hard to break into the winner's circle. Uh, I'm sure you had some good high finishes, probably made some decent money. Uh, but just didn't quite uh, get it over the line, did you? No, and, and I had my chances too. I mean, I was in the final group of the U.S. Women's Open at Cherry Hills the following year in 2005. Um, I've had, you know, a number of other opportunities. I played well. Like I said, I just lacked some consistency uh, with putting scores and putting as much as anything else. Like if I could have putted a bit better, I would have absolutely have had more victories or been more consistent with my putting and not so streaky. But again, yeah. a lot of that comes down to self-belief. And, you know, if you stop winning and you're not winning as much and you, you, you're you on a search to find that little something, something that you had, it becomes the harder you try to find it, the further away it gets from you. And so it becomes a bit of a battle. And then in 2007, I was blessed. Um, I had my son, Logan, in 2007. And so I became a mother. And honestly, he's probably the best thing that I've ever did, ever done, regardless yeah. of major victories or anything like that. Raising, raising him to become, to become a man that he will be is, you know, yeah. probably the most important thing that I could do. Um, but it also was hard because I still was playing golf. I was still the, 
the primary breadwinner of the family. Yeah. What I was making, what I was earning, was paying for him, my husband, for, for us to, to live our lives. And that was extra pressure. And then it slowly but surely started to become about the money. Uh, and then in 2009, obviously I want to play on the Solheim Cup again. And I've been playing pretty good. And, uh, but I got passed over for, for that 2009 Solheim Cup team. So I was a bit mad. And I think I was more mad than anything. And, and it enabled me to let loose of the trying and just have anger and play with, and play with a bit of anger. And I ended up winning in Wales. Yeah. Give our listeners a sense for what your post-season uh, routine was. I would assume that uh, you finish every year. There's sort of an assessment period you go through, looking back on, okay, what, what goals did I accomplish? What didn't I get done? How's my health? Uh, what about other life mm-hmm. priorities? State of my game. We got new competitors coming on the scene every year. It's not getting any easier. Take us a little bit through that process you go through between seasons. Well, I think for the most part, there's a relief that, that the season's finished, uh, that you finally get a little bit of downtime, that you can you know, catch your breath a little bit, go and see family, um, spend Christmas with them. And... You know, that's nice. You know, you get to have a bit of real life because playing tournament golf is not real life. It's not the real world. It's a, a circus. And so you get to live in the real world for a bit and that's nice. But then you have to start back up again. And anybody who's played professional sport or played a musical instrument professionally or to a high level knows that the, the longer you have off, the more time it takes you to get back. So for me, if I had a week off, it was going to take me a week to get back to where I was. And then, if, and then if you want to make improvements, obviously that's time on top of that. So if you take two weeks off, it's going to take two weeks to get back to where I was. And then you have to start adding on time onto that. So the off season for me was always a mental battle between needing that time and allowing myself that time to not feel guilty about it and to not be stressed about the fact that I was going to have to play catch up when I came back. Mm. And you know, rest and recuperation is part of the performance pie. You know, you, you need that. It's pretty important. But um, the guilt that goes along with it is was hard for me. And um, so I would typically try not to rest as much as I should have. And so you, you, you inevitably burn out quicker than you want to. And you inevitably yeah. need a break from it quicker than you need, than you should have. So... You know, in the off season, you 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 do you reassess. You t- you take stock of what you did well, what you didn't do well. And in those days, the statistics weren't as good as they are now. So you kind of had to have a bit of a gut feel for it, trust your coach, and start planning for for the following year. And and for me, it was all about what tournaments am I going to play in? Trying to peak peak at the right time. You know, am I going to play my best golf in the majors, Solheim Cups? You know, the big tournaments, the one with the big purses. That's really yeah. what was mattering. Yeah. So working on that. I, I saw Bruce smiling when you were start, starting to talk about taking time off and the impact of time <laughs> off. He probably remembers what Ben Hogan oh, told him once. Oh, dear. Yeah, Mr. Hogan, that? I said to him one day, uh, uh, I guess it was, we were playing a practice round together or maybe in a golf tournament. I said, so Ben, and I didn't call him Ben very often, but. 
So that, how how many yeah. how many days a year do you take off? And he looked at me like I'd handed him a snake. He said, "Take a day <laughs> off." He said, "You take a day off, it takes you two days to get back to where you were." So you were you were twice as quick at getting back to your game as what Hogan was. <laughs> he said the day off is two, two days to get back to where you were. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, so as you, as you approach 2014, I guess, when you decide to sort of uh, wind down the full-time play, uh, just, just bridge that gap from mm-hmm. that, that, that victory in 2009 and, and what life was like on the tour with you had, personal life going on you got a, a young son you're yep. you're raising and so forth uh, uh just uh, the thought process leading up to finally saying okay uh, enough time to turn the page and do something different so it was probably i'd obviously had the victory in 2009 i played solime cup in 2011 and and it was getting to the point where you've got young talent coming in all the time i'm trying to raise a child who's about to start school um, and and for to not be traveling with me. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. Logan's tremendous, but he was a hard hard baby. Like I re- I didn't get an awful lot of sleep. Um, he was you know just busy. I mean, boys are busy. He was particularly busy, and so it was hard. And making money was hard because I had not an awful lot of sleep, and it got to the point where. He was going to go to school. He wasn't going to travel with me, but I was still playing golf when I, I still had to practice and be outside of the home. So I wasn't seeing him very much. And it was really kind of heart wrenching for me to, to not see him. Yeah. Um, at the time, I thought, I'm going to throw everything I possibly can at golf. You know, if I'm going to be away, if I'm going to do this, I want to you know, have one final hurrah that I can be you know, throw everything I can at it. So I lost weight. I got extra fit. Um, I worked, I basically worked my ass off, you know, to be good. And I did everything the right way. I mean, I did everything that I was supposed to do, but the results weren't coming on the golf course. You know, nothing I was, you know, the pressure of having to make money was getting to be more than my enjoyment of hitting quality golf shots. And I started to worry about making bills. I started to you know, because after I had Logan, I lost, you know, in those days, sponsors didn't stay around. You know, I lost over $100,000 in savings mm. just because of having a baby. And so it kind of sets you back a little bit in terms of your finances. And so I was under the gun to really, really try and make up the money to, to, to keep, you know, everything fluid for our family. And it just got to be a little too much. Um, so I had my first foray into commentary, started in 2007, straight after Logan was born, actually. I did some Radio 5 live work at the Open Championship at Carnoustie. Loved it. Thought it was fabulous. I thought, crikey, if this is something that I could do potentially when I retire, this this might be a good good gig for me. So every once in a while, I would do some work for the BBC, uh, some Ryder Cup stuff, some Open stuff. Um, every once in a while I'd do a little bit of TV, but not a huge amount. And it got to the point where I thought, yeah, I really, really want to do this. But obviously living in America, working for the BBC isn't really the, <laughs> the opportunity and the money making chance that it should, that it, that it should be. So I'm like, how do I, how do I turn 
what I think I'm fairly good at into something that I can do long term in America. And obviously, Golf Channel was broadcasting LPGA Tour Golf. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's something I can do. Maybe there's a little open spot there for somebody to to go in and do a few weeks or do a few little bit of work and see where that turns out. So I spoke to Beth Hutter, who was the producer at the time back in 2013. And I said, you know, any chance I could tag along, you know, with your own courses and see how it goes and, you know, see if this is something I can do. And she says, absolutely, of course. So off I go, tag along, quickly realized that, that I could do that. So every opportunity I got, I would hang around in the trucks. I would tag along. I would follow what people were doing. I was learning all the time. And then in the summer of 2013 in Toledo, I'd missed the cut. And I thought, another missed cut. This is getting to the point of, uh, of, of being impossible for me. Really starting to hate being on the golf course. Just really the, the disappointments were getting too much for me every week. So... Uh, I, I talked to Beth. I said, hey, can I tag along again this week? And she said, funnily enough, we could do with a third on course. Do you fancy putting on a pack and giving it a go? And I said, sure. <laughs> and I'm thinking, crikey, here we go. This is this is it. And uh, little did I know that that was really an audition for me to see if I could. And sure enough, here I am. That's really how I how I got into it yeah. in the summer of 2013. And and then I started doing more in 14. But I still, I played a little bit in 14 too, but. It has grown since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we want to come back and cover some of the uh, uh, the work you've done as a broadcaster uh, the last several years. Before that, let's just let's just double back a little bit in time and make sure we cover off the team play because, uh, in addition to your <laughs> amateur play uh, on the on the Curtis mm-hmm. Cup and the uh, Vagliano Trophy, you had an opportunity to represent England at the World Cup. Also, we've talked about the Solheim Cup. We want to talk about your appearances there. So let's start with the World Cup because you had a chance, uh, at least in 2005, (laughs) to uh, go to South Africa with Laura Davies and play for England. Yep. I did. You know, obviously getting a chance to play with Laura is a bit of a dream come true, to be honest, as her partner. And um, she, it was fun. We were played at Fancourt in South Africa. So that was an experience in itself because I think Fancourt is probably one of the toughest golf courses that I've ever played. And uh, there were some funny stories. Um, not sure that I played my best. Laura always played well, but I don't. I think I might have <laughs> let the side down just a little bit there. But uh, I let her down big time on the one hole. So the 18th at Fancourt, par five. I've hit a good drive and Laura has pulled out a driver and pummeled this shot onto the green, off the deck, off of a downhill lie. Just magnificent shot. <laughs> so we're on the green in two, chance of eagle. So I stand there with my putter, give it a good roll, a little too much of a good roll, putted it right off the green into a bunker. <laughs> so Laura's standing there with her putter, expecting a little tap in birdie. She has to go back to the bag and pull out a sand wedge. So that was my experience of the World Cup. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh, Thank you, partner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she all she could do was laugh. Like she, she, she like was basically rolling around laughing because she saw how horrified I was at doing it, and that was quite funny. She's got to be a fun hang, isn't she? Just a delightful uh, lady. Oh she yeah, is delightful. Yeah, she knows her stuff. Yeah, and a bit of a Renaissance woman, right? I mean, she's into a lot of different stuff, and she, she, she's into more stuff than I am. I think um, <laughs> she likes the. She likes the horses and she likes the, you know. Fast cars. A lot, a lot more. 
exactly, exactly. I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a bit of an SUV kind of person, just kind of a slow and steady, <laughs> just kind of you know. Yeah, suburban housewife kind of style. Is that yeah. Uh, huh? yeah. exactly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Safety first. Yeah, life insurance person. That's me. Well, let's talk Solheim Cup because uh, in 2003 you probably could have made the team, but you weren't yet eligible, were you? No, um, I was not a member of the European Tour um, because I had put all my eggs in the LPJ basket. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, playing on the Solheim Cup wasn't something that even entered my mind when I was trying to establish myself as a professional. And then all of a sudden it became a thing. And I thought, well, you know, how do I become a member? And I thought the thought of having to go through Q school was, I, I really didn't want to have to do that. So the option was win, you know, win an LET event or win on the LPGA. So um, obviously not in 2003, but 2005 was the next opportunity. So I made it my goal to try and get in on that and, which was why in 2004 I started my season in Australia on the LET because I wanted to try and have an opportunity to to win. Right. Yeah, so uh, you got picked by uh, your captain. Uh, Katrin Nilsmark was the captain for the yep. the uh, the European team and Nancy Lopez on the U.S. side. The, it was contested at Crooked Stick, an old Pete Dye track that uh, yep. is a wonderful place down in uh, Carmel, Indiana. And uh, you guys ended up on the losing end of it, but you were up against some pretty good players, we weren't you? We were. Um, I mean, it's always tough uh, in an away game uh, for whatever team you play on. I was, I just remember being shocked at how raucous the crowds were, even at the Solheim Cup. And bear in mind, it has nothing. It's nothing like the Ryder Cup. Um, it's much more mild in comparison to the Ryder Cup. But even when there's a cheer, when you miss a putt, you're like, wait, what? You're cheering because I missed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was uh, quite jarring. And and it was big. I mean, and, and, and the hardest thing for me, I played my singles match against Meg Mallon. And Meg has done everything she can to help my career. I mean, she would sign, you know, she would write letters of recommendation for visas and green cards and things like that. And she was a good friend, her and Beth Daniel. And I just, playing against her was really hard for me. Like I find that that head-to-head fight actually quite difficult. And it took me a while to realize what I needed to do to excel in match play. And it had nothing to do with going head-to-head. I still, I had to try and make five, five to eight birdies in that round and hopefully it was good enough to win. But going head to head, I was trying to be something I wasn't. And it was hard and impossible because I liked her. You know, it was so hard to play against someone you like. How much fun was the aspect of team play on the Solheim Cup? The first time it was stressful because the the level of expectation that's placed on your shoulders is huge, especially as a captain's pick. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you know, like I said, for the Curtis Cup, not just are you your country's representative, but you're the continent's representative. You are one of the best women golfers in the whole of Europe. And every single female golfer in Europe is counting on you to get points for them. You know, that's that's the, the reality of it when you're standing on the tee. Yes, you're playing for your teammates and you're playing for your captain, but it comes down to being so much more than that. And when you stand on that first tee knowing it, the level of expectation is just immense and the, the thought of having to try and find the fairway is huge. Now, I wasn't one of those people that, that threw up before they teed off. 
I was no, I was a little more calmer than that. But, but for some reason, the the captains always like to put me in that last spot. <laughs> so off I went last with Meg Mallon. <laughs> well, so you had more fun in two thousand eleven, I guess, huh? Uh, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, winning makes a big difference. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're this time you're you're at home. Yes, uh, we were in Ireland. Weather was atrocious, uh, but uh, being part of a winning team was everything. Uh, the victories, the songs, the bus rides. I mean, that's something that, that unless you've been on a team and you sit on the bus and you sing the songs and you sing the chants and you're in that locker room with all the other players, it's very hard to put it into words just exactly what that's like. And I think f- of all the times those were the most fun. The bus rides, the locker rooms, those were the most fun. And the after party when you win, that's pretty fun too. Drinking <laughs> drinking Guinness out of the Solheim Cup is probably the best thing you can do. There you go. <laughs> well, Bruce and I have heard a lot of great bus ride stories from uh, yeah. you girls traveling to Japan oh. and playing over there. Yeah. Maybe you can give us some inside baseball on some of these songs and bus rides from the Solheim Cup. <laughs> oh, I don't know if there's too many secrets I can divulge with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a, there's a lot of uh, motivational songs, and there's some not so not not. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be past nine o'clock to talk about some of these songs. <laughs> you've got to be past the watershed. A <laughs> little, little on the edge. Some of the lyrics, maybe, <laughs> huh? So yes, <laughs> yeah. You, you you probably get a chance to see a different side of some of these ladies, though, don't you? That maybe you don't see every week out on the tour. Yes, Katrina Matthew will surprise you. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why she's won two Solheim Cups as a captain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's pretty tough too, isn't she? Yep. Oh yeah, but so mild in the outwardly mild. Yeah, yeah inside. Yeah, well, I know she was a captain's pick with you back in 2005. I think she probably probably made the team outright in, in 2011. But, uh, you know, you're talking about Laura Davies and Suzanne Pedersen and Anna Nordquist mm-hmm. and Katrina and Sophie Gustafson yep. and, and you. I mean, you got you had some – Annika was a, non-assistant, uh, a non-playing yep. assistant captain that year. But you, you had some players, and you're going up against a pretty yep. tough captain, a Rosie Jones. I mean, I, I know she was a hard-nosed competitor. Yep. Had a lot yeah. of success in the LPGA oh, yeah. tour, but you guys got it done. Yeah. Yep. And that's, uh, you know, that's something I can be really grateful for too, that that I have, again, you know, for for my job now, I've experienced both winning and losing yeah. at both Curtis Cup level and Solheim Cup level. It gives me a really good base of knowledge uh, from which I can be, you know, I can empathize with everybody with, you know, like I can, I feel what they're feeling. Like I still feel those same emotions when I'm watching it that I would have done if I was playing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So let's, you, let's get you back in the broadcast booth or out on the fairways as the case may be with microphone in hand. Uh, and as you're probably yep. aware, Bruce did what you're doing for several years, uh, yep. post career and, and, uh, kind of, Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, he was really getting serious into the golf design business. So you share a lot of experiences that I'm sure uh, you're, you're going to be happy to talk about. I do have a question for you. My question is, when you, when you finally got the chance 
to uh, move in with the Golf Channel. Did the producer have a talk to you and give you an idea of what you should and shouldn't do, or did you just go at it without any help? Uh, um, Jerry Foltz was obviously very helpful. Like he gave me a lot of advice, a lot of help, a lot of, you know, just the, on the mechanics of it, as much as, you know, when to talk, when not to talk, what calling tape shots, things like that. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I think now you just get thrown in at the deep end. Like, here you go. Hopefully you're not going to sink. <laughs> you know, if you float, then you get to do it again. Yeah. If you sink, then we'll find somebody else. Um, but I had some good advice uh, from Jerry. Beth, the producer, gave me a few little little bits and pieces of what to do. But basically, I was left to my own devices to find to find my own way. And and I was very lucky that I did both. I did both booth and ground. Um, that way, I get a good. I have a good knowledge of how every part of of a golf broadcast yeah. works, um, which I think is is really good in the, in the in the long run. But no, it's it. I'm still learning. I mean, it's a funny story. Yeah. Like even down to the microphone. So. Probably, you know, I'm probably about five or six years, five years into my TV business. You know, I've been doing this for some time. And uh, and Beth is like, you you sound so quiet. What's what's wrong? You know, you're quiet. And so I said, I don't know. I'm, I'm doing what I normally do. I don't know why I'm quiet. So I come in <laughs> to the to the trucks that does the microphone and the packs. And they're like, how are you holding the mic? Where are you speaking? I said, well, I hold it, you know, here. And they're like, no, you've got to talk into the top of the mic. You've got to feel like you're eating the mic. I'm like, why are you only just telling me this now? Like, here we are five years yeah. in and now you're just telling me. So, yeah, so that was my, you know, every single day there's something else. There's something new, you know, that you learn how to go about certain things, where you're standing, calling tape shots, trying to try not to give the game away. Yeah. Trying, you know, remembering to call it as if you would have called it live, uh, not going on air if somebody if 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 the crowds are about to clap whilst calling a tape shot because that gives everything away. Like there's yeah. all kinds of little tricks yeah. that you have to learn that you pick up along the way. That all sound familiar, Bruce. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, Bruce didn't <laughs> get a whole lot of advice. Uh, probably more thrown into the deep end, wouldn't you agree, Bruce? Well, I'll, t I'll tell Karen exactly what advice I got from Don Olmeyer, who came to work from ABC to NBC when I worked with NBC. And he said, I said to him, so Don, is there anything, you know, can you help me a little bit? Uh, you know, my first time in the tower. And he said, yeah, I, I can help you a lot. He said, just remember that what you see on your monitor, the people at home see so. You don't have to talk anything about what you're seeing on the monitor. You need to you need to fill the spaces in of the individual that's about to hit the shot and what he has to face. And he said, "Because that's your expertise. The camera will tell the rest of it." Yep. So it was pretty good advice. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that's perfect advice. But it's it's figuring out what the people at home don't know and what they want to know. Yeah, that's right. Give us a sense of your kind of typical schedule now, 
Karen, because we, we do see on the fairways, we see in the booth, we see in the studio. Uh, you got a lot mm-hmm. going on. Is, is, you know, let's just talk about your schedule. And is there, of those three, and there may be more, is there one aspect of it you like, can prefer more than, more than the other? It's funny, you know, as I have, as I have progressed in, in through this role, um, every aspect is slightly different. If, if you're in the studio as a studio analyst, like Brandel Shambly, you get to completely delve in deep and go in, in depth as to who's doing what, where and why. You can look at numbers, look at swings, formulate a good picture of what's going on on the golf course with that particular player at any given time. You have time to flesh it out. You have time to, to do the how and the why. Um, so in many respects, that's quite rewarding. Uh, because you you have time to research it, you can look it up, and you have a really good finished product. If you're in the booth on the uh, tournament site and you're the analyst, you, you've got to think on your feet. You've got to be quick with your answers. You've got to jump in, jump out. You've got to do the how and the whys very quickly. You've got to be observant. You can't let your guard down, and you've got to be aware of when other people are talking and not to talk over other people. But you see everything, so so you're you're completely in the game the whole time and you feel like you're part of the story and the tournament and that in itself is very fulfilling. But for for me, the most fulfilling part is being out on the golf course with those players because you're living and breathing the shots with them. You're seeing it through their eyes, where they're standing, what what they're dealing with. You can feel the emotion in the crowd and and in the players like as you're walking with them, like it feels like you're still doing it. I think that to me is probably the most rewarding bit of, of it is is feeling how I used to feel when I played. And that keeps me in the game. But every other bit has, you know, you know, every other aspect of this job that I do has aspects of being equally as rewarding, but being on the ground is really fun. Yeah. I'll share a personal example that uh, I probably have just a little, little snippet of what you're saying. I mean, it's I, I haven't experienced it personally mm-hmm. as you have, but... I was working the 15th tee of the U.S. Open Olympia Fields when Jim Furyk won, right? And I was on that tee every practice round, all four rounds, fairly tedious, as everybody knows, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, but when that lead group got to that tee, mm-hmm. wow. I mean, the, yeah. the tension, the, the, the drama was just palpable, yeah. right? And so if you're walking yep. with the players and feeling that, as you say, every shot experiencing yep. that, that's, that's yep. something. Well, it is. And uh, you're absolutely right. You, can, you feel the energy. Like you can feel it in the players. And having been there myself and, and knowing what's going through their minds and what, what their bodies are dealing with, you know, with the nerves and, you know, trying to get the job done, the psychology of it. Um, I mean, there's, it's such a cool place to be because yeah. you, you're, live, you're reliving it, but without the actual pressure of having to do it. <laughs> you work with some fun people, don't you? Yeah. Oh, I love it. I mean, I, you know, the, the biggest gift I could have ever had in my broadcasting career was getting to work with Judy Rankin. Yeah, she's a sweet lady. Yeah, I mean, she's just a treasure. Um, like I said, I used to love it when she would come and talk to me on the driving range. You know, and then all of a sudden I'm working with her, you know, 
somebody who's been there and done it has so much experience and really was a trailblazer for for all of us women that have followed after her within the industry and she's so well liked and so well respected across the board that it's really something to aspire to you know if if I go out at the end of my term with half of the amount of respect that she has garnished I'd have had a I'd have lived a very good life and done a very good thing but with my commentary so if I can be half as good as Judy I'm going to be very happy yeah but uh obviously you know you the, the LPGA team is very tight, close-knit. Tom Abbott and Grant Boone, Morgan Pressel now, Paige McKenzie. I mean, we have a great group and we are 100% all in on on calling women's golf and and uh, trying to showcase it in the best way we can. So looking, looking forward, is there something in broadcasting you'd still like to do that you haven't had much of the opportunity to do yet? I, I don't know. I, I think it's different asking me now than having asked me a few years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, f- like four years ago, I'd have said I, I would have wanted more of a chance to cover men's golf, um, be on course on, for the PGA Tour. I think I probably would have said that four or five years ago. Um, now, I mean, I've done a little bit of that and I'm quite happy with what I've done. Now I feel like I'm very happy with my roles. I'm very content with who I am and the voice that I have. Um, I'm more confident than I've ever been with with what I'm saying. And I'm just really content with what I have. You know, I enjoy my job. I enjoy the people I work with. And uh, I can't ask for, for anything more than that. I think um, this year I have a really fantastic schedule. I mean, this year my schedule is like off the charts good. I do the women's majors. I'm going to go and do the, the Open Championship at Troon. I'm going to cover two weeks of Olympic golf. I'm going to do the men's and the women's Olympic golf, which makes me incredibly happy that I get to be on the ground Mm -hmm. to cover both men's and women's there. Um, And also, you know, everything that's going on with women's golf. Like I feel like um, I have a fantastic schedule and the the doors have really opened these past couple of years for for me to to do a lot of the stuff that, that I've dreamed of doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, continued good luck with that career yeah, and we'll keep absolutely. watching. Um, in, in the meantime, as you look back at, uh, you know, how life changed coming after uh, uh, the big win at the British Open, I guess one of the neat things that happened for you is you were awarded an honorary membership at Royal Sink Ports. I was. And, uh, you know, Deal have always been good to me. You know, they've, they've always looked after me. They've, they've made sure that, you know, I had whatever I needed and was able to practice whenever I wanted to and play whenever I wanted to. And uh, to know that I can always go back there and play whenever I want is is pretty cool. Mm. But nice. it also, honorary membership at Prince's as well, where I first started is lovely. Yeah. I play golf at a course called Canterbury Golf Club, which is just up the road as well. They've given me honorary membership too. And then uh, Sunningdale and also where I won the um, the Welsh. Ah. Cool. Royal St. David's yeah. also have honorary yeah. membership there too. Going back, Royal St. David's is also called Harlech, another one of those courses yep. that has another name. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. Well, you know, back to St. Ports, uh, uh, just for our listeners, a little bit of history, uh, because they did hold the Open Championship there a couple of times, uh, a little before they had the 32 Open Championship Princes. One was... In uh, two in, in 1909, J. H. Taylor won there. He was from England, 
And then a Scotsman, George mm-hmm. Duncan, won there in 1920. You know, they were scheduled to have the Open Championship at Deal two other times. Were you aware of that? I think I've read somewhere about that. That, uh, But wasn't it because of flooding or war exactly. or something like that that it wasn't happening? It, ex- exactly. Yeah. 1938 and 1949, both of those years, the Open Championship was scheduled to be played at Deal. And due to high tides... They had to move it to, yeah. to George's. Amazing. Well, they've since built a seawall, like a big seawall there now that uh, a big stone bank embankment that uh, the water doesn't come over very much. But there is some, some low areas that still get a little wet. I uh, understand you're a big football fan. Uh, Tottenham must be your, must be your team. I'm an Arsenal, <laughs> Arsenal girl. No, I knew but that. I knew that. That that's that's been inherited from my dad. So right? <laughs> my dad's my dad's and his family have always been Arsenal fans. So that's kind of been handed down to me. Um, it's much easier to keep up with it now over here in America than it ever used to be. But yeah. I, I kind of lost track of it for a little bit there. Yeah, kind of like Formula One now. You know, more Americans are following European football, aren't they? Yep, I think uh, because it's on TV and. I think more kids are playing soccer now in school and I think they just fall into it and realize that it's a you know it's a pretty cool sport even though the scoring isn't uh, isn't very exciting you can have nil nil quite a lot and yeah. <laughs> yeah. not much action but yeah it's cool Well go gunners you go with the team I'll go with the drink Yes <laughs> Okay perfect <laughs> All right as we wind down and I alluded to this uh, early on in our visit, uh, but we always finish with three questions, Karen. And I always uh, give the tea to my compatriot, Mr. Older Duncan. partner is what he was going to say, Karen. He's <laughs> <laughs> more experienced. Exactly. So the first exactly. question, Karen, if mm-hmm. you were – to have known what you know now when you first started on the tour, what would you have done differently? Oh, well, I, I do think that I have spoken a little bit about that. I think I probably would have spent more time on my short game. I really feel like I could have developed the chipping and putting a little bit more and i and I feel like I could have had more confidence in myself, realizing that you can win tournaments not having your best stuff. And I, I felt like I was always really hard on myself. I feel like I needed to have given myself a little bit more slack. Uh, so I think be easier on myself and work on my putting and chipping more. We thought we might hear that, but we weren't sure. Yeah. Maybe they were yeah. think something else. Uh, <laughs> Second question, we're going to give you one career mulligan. You got one do-over for one shot in your career anywhere. I don't know if it would have made a difference in uh, 2005 at Cherry Hills in the U.S. Open, but one shot somewhere, where would you take it? It would be the sixth hole at Mission Hills. It was the Craft Abisco or the Dinosaur, whichever, or Chevron now. Um, So I was with Yanni Seng in the final group. I think it must have been, I don't know what year it was, forget now, mm-hmm. maybe 11, 2011. And uh, I'm doing okay. Yanni's got off to a quick start. But again, as I have done in the past, I tried to push a little bit. So on the sixth hole, I've run through a little bit and I'm on a downslope. I'm right in front of, this, of the pond. 
you've got to hit over the pond to a green that slopes heavily back to front. And I was in between clubs. I was in between a nine iron and an eight iron. The eight iron would put me at the back of the green. I've got to be really finicky with it, just a small little eight iron. But I could hit a big nine iron and get it to stop on the green. And, you know, big nine iron seemed to be the play. So I pull out the big nine iron, catch it a hair thin, lands on the green, spins off the front of the green into the penalty area. And I have a double bogey. I would do over that shot and pull that eight iron out and hit it to the back <laughs> of the green and take my two putt and, and see where it put me. Well, knowing now that the eight was your favorite club, I would have suggested yeah. that as well if I was your captain. <laughs> I know. <Me> too. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> All right, last question. How would you like to be remembered? I think I'd like to be remembered as a kind person who played some good golf. I think that's more more important to me than anything. There you go. It's been fun having you with us, Karen. Thanks a lot for your time and uh, no. I know I know we had some scheduling <laughs> problems, but the wait was worthwhile. I can assure you. Thank you for your time. Well, I really appreciate you you putting so much into this for me. So thank you. Yeah, Karen, it's great to that we were able to add your story to all the golf greats that we've talked about, and uh, sort of creating this history of stories that uh, we hope will live forever with the help of the USGA archiving all these for us. Well, I think that uh, you're doing a very good thing because uh, one day we're not going to be here, and but our voices will live on. Yep, that they will. Thanks very much for joining us. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.